One of the last times I was with you, I believe I told you something that some of you might have been tempted to think was insincere on my part. I told you that I loved you, and you, and you would have been right to say, well, you don't know me. And if you did know me, you wouldn't probably love me anyway, but isn't that just kind of a speaker way of ingratiating himself to the audience? And on the contrary, no. The Lord said that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that it was the man who got down in the ditch and helped the poor man of another race and another religion and helped him out and took him in to get cared, cared for and paid for his care. And when asked by this tricky lawyer who was trying to trap Jesus, well, who was it who loved the man? Who was it who really had compassion on him? He said, well, I suppose it was the man who went and did what he was supposed to do, what he should have done, and helped this man in the ditch. And so I've come today, not because I have ooey-gooey feelings, particularly for any of you. I mean, I'm sure you're all wonderful people and you're all worth ooey-gooey feelings. But um, because I want to do you good. I want to help you. I'm encouraged that you're still together. I'm taking it that some folks are on vacation that you didn't tell them I was coming and they stayed home, but they're on vacation or something like that. So uh, you can tell them that they missed what God had for them this Lord's Day while they were gone, and you can give them a, a free link to a, a message. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. <clears throat> it's a passage of Scripture that has gripped me on and off for several years. It needs to grip me more. As you remember, brief overview, the Thessalonians were a church where Paul had been only four Sundays. He had been there four Lord's Days, preached there, spent time with people, obviously, during the week, but he had to leave. He was run out of town. So he only had a month there, but there was enough people converted and the church was gathered, and so Paul's writing back to these people who had only a month of teaching under their belt before the apostle was, was driven out of town. And they made great progress. They were persecuted, and they were poor, which is not normally a, a mixture for great giving and great generosity, but they were a persecuted people, and they were a poor people, but Paul does commend them a couple of times for how generous they were. And in chapter four, he's reminding them of some things, and it's a good reminder for us, so let's read what the Word of God is. I'm reading out of the ESV version. Yours may differ slightly, but it'll say the same thing. Finally, then, brothers, we ask you, excuse me, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Okay, what he just said was, you guys are doing fine, just keep doing it. Okay, he said, you're already walking or living your life as you should as Christians. Just keep doing it more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And then he's going to give you example number one. For this is the will of God. Aha, you've been looking for the will of God for years. And here's the text that says this is the will of God. So we can make big money when we take this to the Christian bookstore and say, we have found the will of God for you. Well, let's not do that. Let's apply it to our own hearts. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now it's also, the sanctification is the same word for holiness. And he could have said, this is the will of God, your holiness. Holiness and sanctification mean the same thing. That you, and he says, case in point, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The first century was so much like today, it's incredible. Everything was right, nothing was wrong. Uh, you had a wife to bear your legitimate children. You had mistresses to play with. You had concubines or prostitutes that you visited at the houses of worship. And things were very gross and immoral. And Paul's reminding them, just because the pagans live like that, God's called you to something higher. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, that this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we have told you before and solemnly warned you. One of the ways you can defraud people is sexually, and it's been told, and I don't have any way to, to verify this, but it's been said that singles in America live like, single professing Christians live like single pagans in America. Um, they, their, their morality isn't much different, isn't much higher, and that there's a great gap between what singles profess and what they possess. I can't speak to whether or not that's true, but Paul had to remind these people that you're defrauding people if you're sexually involved with them and you're not married to them. 
And he says, God is the avenger. You go, you go oh, that, was God like a superhero? Was he one of the avengers? No. Um, we've been watching too much TV or going to the movies too much. It's an Old Testament term. It's from the book of Numbers. You go, right. The book of Numbers. That's in the Old Testament, isn't it? Yes, it is. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Was that the book written by a CPA? No, it's just not a book written by a CPA. It's just called Numbers because it's numbering the tribes of Israel. But what's very telling here is that he said, when God tells Moses to tell the people, when we get in the promised land, you're gonna be spread out. There's not gonna be hardly any cities or towns. And if somebody commits a crime, what are you gonna do? Well, let's say that you get in a fight with somebody else and break his nose and you go, I'm gonna, he says, I'm gonna go home and tell my family they're gonna come get you. And the family could appoint what was called the avenger of blood. And he could chase you down and wherever he finds you, he could extract payment from you. That's where the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that wasn't a recipe for revenge, that was a recipe for control. You can't pay back somebody worse than they've already done to you. I can't shoot you for stealing my piggy bank or something, okay, that's the point. Now, God set up cities of refuge so that if you did commit a crime and you wanted to be adjudicated by a jury and not this guy coming after you, you'd flee to a city of refuge and the avenger of blood could not take your life or harm you while you're there and he would have to go through the legal processes set up in that town. But by word of application, Paul says, well, what if God is the avenger? Is there a place you could flee from God where he can't get you, where you're out of his reach? No. So he says, don't mess with other people sexually. Don't defraud someone. I sat on a plane one time with a Marine who was on his way back from Camp Pendleton to his home in the South, and he was talking and talking, and uh, he was going on and on about all of his sexual exploits while he was in the Marines in California. And then as he was getting ready to go home, he was divorced and he had a little girl who was about 10 and he couldn't wait to see her. And uh, he was going on about how much he loved his little girl. And so I said, so would you have a problem if a bunch of other men did with your little girl what uh, you did with these other people, with the other men's little girls? And he looked at me and goes, who in the world are you? And I said, well, I'm a Christian pastor and I'm not trying to be mean, but you're a rank hypocrite. You do to other people what you'd never want them to do to your family. You do it to their family. God is the avenger, and he doesn't take it lightly. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. In other words, this isn't just something I invented. This is a word from God, and you're blowing off, you're ignoring the Holy Spirit, if you're ignoring this teaching. Now, I kind of went into some detail here in 1 Thessalonians, but you'll notice it's God's will that you be holy. The universal call of God to every human being on the planet is to be holy. Now, most of the people on the planet at this point are blowing off God, ignoring him, want nothing to do with him, and they have no plans to be holy. But for God's people who profess to be God's people, and in some reality are God's people, then, they need to make holiness their priority because God says, you shall be holy for I am holy. What I wanna do with you during my time today is I wanna show you biblically that God calls each and every one of us to pursue holiness. That is our job description. If you didn't do it, get anything else accomplished by the end of the day, if you pursued holiness, it was not a wasted day. But if you did a thousand other things well but didn't do it in the context of pursuing holiness, that was a wasted day. Next week, I'm gonna follow up this message, Lord willing, with the means that God's given us to pursue holiness. He's not like a coach who sends you the game of life and go get him, Tiger, I'll pray for you and send you out there and you get chewed up. No, he says, these are the means I've given you to pursue holiness. I've not left you unarmed and un unable to, to tackle what I've given you. That's next week. First of all, I'm gonna show you that holiness is a forgotten and tra tragically neglected subject in broad evangelical churches. Then I'm gonna to try to show you what is holiness? What, you know, is it like wearing your hair weird and wearing ugly clothes, is that holiness? There are some people who think, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to look really close to make sure I don't step on anything. Okay, some people think we have to wear your hair in a bun and wear really ugly clothes like Little House on the Prairie and then you're spiritual. Not exactly true. 
And then we're gonna look at five reasons holiness is absolutely important to God and should be absolutely important to you. Let's pray a minute. Father, we've had a time of confession of sin and we said we were sorry for our sins and we hope that we have seen some of them but we've really only ever see a handful of our sins at any one time. You're very gracious. If we saw all of our sins at once, we would probably pass out through fear and apprehension. But you do bring things to our attention, things that you want us to work on, the ways in which you have tapping us on the shoulder by the Holy Spirit or our conscience or a faithful Christian brother coming to us. I pray that during this time today that you'd help us to put aside our prejudices, that you'd help us to face up to our pet sins that we've sprayed Chanel on, called it Fifi, and keep it in the backyard and don't let anybody bother it. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see our sins and to see that you've called us to something much higher, not to look like ourselves, but to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. How many conferences have you ever attended in your life about the subject of personal holiness? Have you even ever seen a conference advertised, you know, big billboards around the city or in Christian magazines or uh, links on the internet, a conference on how to become holy like the Lord is holy. Doesn't happen. How many of you have ever, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but I'm just, how many of you have ever read a book on the pursuit of holiness? Which by the way, that's the name of the best book on the subject, The Pursuit of Holiness, at least a starter. It's a good starter book. And how many of you have ever heard your pastor, and I'm not speaking in the context of just this church, but many of you come from other places, Growing up in other churches, did you ever hear your pastor preach on personal holiness? It's not just a neglected subject, it's a forgotten subject. In the last 20 years, three well-known Christian leaders have spoken out about this problem, and the evangelical world's gone, and just ignored them. In 1992, J.I. Packer, the famous reformed theologian, he wrote a book called Rediscovering Holiness. And he said he gave it the title because he said holiness used to be the marker for all evangelical Christians. If a man claimed to be a Christian, and he really was one, he would be noted for being a holy man, someone who really pursued being like the Lord. But he said, that's not true anymore. And he said, the shift away from the pursuit of holiness to focus on fun and fulfillment, ego massage and techniques for present success, and then worrying about public issues that carry no challenge for my own personal morals is a fact To my mind, it's a sad and scandalous fact, and one that needs to be reversed. Nobody cares about holiness. No one hears about holiness. And that was in 1992. In 2005, in response to a book written by a historian named uh, Mark Knoll, which was entitled The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, a better book that was even less read was The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience by Ron Sider, who was not a reformed scholar in any, any means. He's under the descendants of the Anabaptists of the Reformation period. But he said the scandal of the evangelical conscience is that there is none. He said all the studies show us that evangelicals live pretty much like the people next door who don't profess to be Christians at all. In 2017, just before he died, reformed theologian R.C. Sproul was interviewed and he said, number one, the biggest problem facing America is They don't know who God is. He says, and the biggest problem facing the American church is they don't know who God is. Now, because they don't know who God is, they don't know what God requires of them, what God wants them to be, what Christ has provided for them, why they were given the Holy Spirit, why they were given the scriptures of the church. When I lived in Atlanta and ministered there for 31 years as a pastor and several more years as a ministry with pastors, It was grievous to me that the two largest churches in the county was the suburb of the Metroplex, and there was 110,000 people in our county, and there was was, uh, 110 churches. And uh, we estimated that maybe 25 would identify with the label of evangelical. That was to be generous. We said, uh, how many of these churches ever teach on holiness? We could only think of two. And what was worse, the two largest churches would put out billboards and signs by the road to promote what they were gonna be teaching on. And to me, I I can't tell what grieved me most when they were scandalous or practically blasphemous. 
One church had a sign out there on the main thoroughfare going in and out of the county on a four lane. It said, good sex, and here's the weeks that we're gonna preach on that. I go, really? I mean, that's a subject that, you know, God cares about it. He even invented the plumbing and knows all about it. So he's certainly committed to us getting it right. But is that really a big burning issue that people need to be aware of and that you need to have your teenagers slimed with and junior high, I'm sure every junior high boy who went by and is that what you want your church known about? Oh yeah, it's the church where that happens. How pathetic. What's particularly grievous is that holiness is a big deal to God and it's a big deal in his word. You don't do theology by counting words because the word the would be the most significant theology of the Bible because the word the is used all the time. Okay, so that's a, that's a good way of saying that counting words isn't the way you do theology. But how often is the word holy or holiness or its adjectives used? A thousand times God's word talks about holiness. It's a big deal. That's in the Old, Old Testament. A thousand Hebrew words reflecting holiness. In the New Testament, over 300 Greek usages of the words that are translated holy or holiness or sanctification. So 1,300 times in the Bible, God says holiness is an issue. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible given over to the subject of holiness, and it's probably the least read book of the Bible. You kind of go, Nahum? No. Uh, Jonah? No. Uh, Obadiah? No. The book of Leviticus. How many of you have ever started the book of Leviticus and didn't finish it? Uh, it's kind of intricate and hairy and all these sacrifices and I don't know what's going on here. The subject of the book of Leviticus is holiness unto the Lord. And the reason why there's all these sacrifices is because God says, if you think you can come into my presence without a substitute paying your way, without a substitute paying for your sins, you're sadly mistaken. So holiness is a big deal in the Bible. But today, if this is a big deal, nobody's paying attention, not even pastors. But God sees what's going on, and it's painfully aware to him that his people, at least in America, are not concerned about holiness. Now, why is it that preachers in most churches never preach about holiness? And again, I'm just talking about not just this church, but all kinds of broad churches that would claim to be evangelical in some sense. Why is it that pastors don't preach about holiness? Well, as I've interacted with pastors over the years, they fail to preach on it for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, Mr. Big, who gives a lot of money, isn't a particularly godly man. If I preach on holiness, I'm gonna run him off, and I don't wanna do that. Or, if you preach on holiness and visitors come that particular Sunday, they go, oh, I don't wanna to go to that church, man. They emphasize being holy. And so, for the sake of the big givers or visitors, they don't preach on holiness. You know, there are people in churches today, they can tell you all about bull markets, asset liquidity, risk dispersal, and you talk to them about regeneration or justification by faith alone and Christ alone, and they blink and they look like a calf looking at a new gate it's never seen. They just kind of stare, because they have no clue what it means. Too many church leaders, nickels and noses, and building large, opulent church buildings is the name of the game. In fact, in at least one Baptist denomination, it's a, it's a counted wisdom among pastors. You wanna bring your people together, you wanna have new people come in, build a new building. And all across the South, we have vacant, big buildings that churches built to they thinking, if you build it, they will come. And well, man, I can stay home and watch TV for all the good it's doing going to that church, and so they don't come. So what happens? Well, you have a downward cycle of unholiness in the American churches. You've heard it said before, and I think to some degree it's true. If God doesn't judge American churches, then he's gonna to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah, because a lot of the same stuff goes on in our churches. If God calls us to live for him, and that runs contrary to our culture, we're either gonna to have to become countercultural or not follow the Lord. And I think too many churches, too many people aren't following the Lord. You know, sin is so scary, even though you think, yeah, sin's a bad thing. No, it's worse than bad, it's scary. It's the worst thing you've ever faced in your life. Think of something cosmic, think of something great. Think of the plan of salvation. 
Almighty God, the sovereign God who made heaven and earth, he sends his son to save a sinner like you. And because you wouldn't have even cared that he did that, he sent the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and unstop your ears and change your heart so you could see what Christ did, see your condition, and want to become a believer. And sin goes, yes, and he did it all for you. Because you know, it's all about you. And even this cosmic plan of salvation, it's all about you. And so like this huge black hole that sin is, it sucks even the doctrines of grace. It sucks the sovereignty of God into making it all about me. And that's a narcissist, somebody who thinks that everything's all about him or her. It's not about you. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Newsflash, Christianity is not about you. It's about the kind of God who's created the world and who sustains it moment by moment and who calls us to, if he saves you, to follow him in humble obedience. Contemporary churches will preach about God giving them good marriages, good children, good jobs, good health, good finances, good self-image, and a great future. But they'll never hear many churches about the holiness of God, his holy wrath on the day of judgment, the life of holiness that he calls each of his believers to. What are the American churches to do with all these unholy people? Well, in 1988, John MacArthur dropped a bomb on the playground of American evangelical pastors. He wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. Kablooey, things went off. If Jesus isn't your Lord, you're not a Christian. If you've never repented, you're not a Christian. What do you mean? And people went berserk. John Mark MacArthur was just teaching classic evangelical Protestant Christianity, but things had become so watered down, things had become so bad that it seemed like a bombshell. The gospel according to Jesus sent a lot of pastors of megachurches reeling because their churches were full of, full of people who came to find out how Jesus could enhance their life, but said little or nothing about how they were to submit their lives to Christ. In fact, one of the churches in Southern California down the freeway from John MacArthur's was made up of people exactly like he talked about in his book. And the pastor of that church was so scared that he'd be pastoring an empty building in a few weeks, that he wrote his own book. And he said, not really, how holy do you have to be to please God? Holiness isn't that big a deal. In Atlanta, where I was living at the time, there was a book called Eternal Security. And I'll say the pastor's name, it was Char Chuck, excuse me, Charles Stanley. Chuck Swindoll was the pastor of the first church in Southern California before he moved back east. And Charles Stanley was in Atlanta. I'm naming his name because he's a public teacher. He writes books and saying this is truth. His book, Eternal Security, which he says in the foreword, I want us to thank my son Andy Stanley because he wrote, he did all the research for me. Well, the book is, is heresy and this is where it goes. I read the first half of the book in a Christian bookstore because I didn't want to pay the money to buy it. So I'm sorry to read it. But the second half, I should have read it because that's where the heresy comes in. The question is asked, what about Uncle Harry? You know that uncle, kind of weird. And he prayed the prayer when he was 10. He never went to church the rest of his life, never lived a religious life, never lived a holy life. Was always kind of like, whoa, stay away from Uncle Harry. Now what happens to him when he dies? Well, Charles Stanley said, when he dies, he'll go to that part of heaven called outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And God will whip him into shape over time. He'll get to see how people who live for the Lord in their lifetime are living in the good part of heaven. And eventually when he's whipped them into shape, he'll bring them into the good part of heaven to rejoin the rest of believers. And I was like, Protestant purgatory. He went to those lengths to explain what do you do with all these pew sitters or non-attenders who never live a day in their life for the Lord. Protestant purgatory. It's not always been this way. In the 1740s, before the American Revolution, there was a great revival that happened and Jonathan Edwards, the preacher in Northampton, Massachusetts, decided to write an analysis. Let's look at this so-called revival and see what's good and bad, what's of the flesh, what's of the devil, and what's truly of God by the Holy Spirit. And so religious affections is a study of how can you tell what's going on? Is what's going on in our midst, is it of the spirit? Is it of the flesh? like is jumping up and down and giving each other high fives. Is that anywhere in scripture indication that the spirit of God's working? No, it's not, it doesn't say anywhere in scripture. It means the spirit isn't working. So you can't really say it's anything, but you can't say it's a spiritual marker. 
And the weird things that happen in churches, people say, this is of the Spirit. Well, I wouldn't want to blame the Holy Spirit for that. Anyway, I'll summarize 300 pages. You can save a lot of time. Jonathan Edwards says, the number one identifier, if this is a work of God, is if the people who are supposedly converted want to be holy. If you don't want to be holy, you're not a Christian. You may be religious, but you're not a Christian. If you don't want to be holy, you're not a Christian. And that's what makes us stand out in the dark world. You know, I've said before, and your church is an example, but I think I told the leadership team here when they came down to uh, our church, Heritage Baptist Church in Mansfield, and met with the pastors and met with myself. I'm not an elder in the church. I'm an officer in the seminary. But I said that Reformed and confessional churches have a bigger bullseye than any other churches that are around today. And whether it's a Reformed Baptist church or a confessional Presbyterian church or confessional Dutch Reformed church, confessional churches have the biggest bullseyes. Why? Now, you know what a bullseye is. It's those concentric rings that deer don't want to have as birthmarks. Okay. What are these concentric circles of bullseye? What are they all about? If I'm the devil, do you want to shoot the megachurch where they hardly believe anything and they're giving away truth as fast as they can to fit in with the culture so people will like them? Or are they trying to hold on to as much truth as they can, have the husbands and wives grasp it together and turn around and teach their children, and then to preach it to whoever will listen? That last group is the greater threat long term because you're holding on to the truth. You're holding on to a lot of truth. Reformed confessionalists are not minimalists, we're maximalists. You know, I grew up in a parachurch context and we had enough theology to teach you how to get saved and then we'd teach you how to go out and witness to other people, but that's, you can't live your life on enough theology just to get saved. You need to have the whole counsel of God. And so strategically, if I'm the devil, I'm gonna shoot at churches like yours. Our church in Mansfield, the pastor who came down with the strange disease and was knocked out of the pulpit. Your pastor has succumbed to a difficult situation in his family. That's a heartbreak. That's a tragedy. I've met him and his family. But it shouldn't surprise us if you have any clue about spiritual warfare. Reformed pastors have big bullseyes on their heads and on their backs and on their chest. And this church does as a church. The devil would like nothing better than to take it out because you're a bright and glaring spot in the north side of Fort Worth. So let me say... Holiness has been a neglected subject, but let's look at what holiness is and what holiness does. First of all, what is holiness? Now, that could be like a vague term, like someone says, how was the service? It was glorious. Okay, that's a nice word. What does that mean? It was glorious. Oh, pastor did a pretty good job. We sang good hymns today. Okay, that's, thank you. What does holiness mean? J.I. Packer wrote a book called God's Words, where he took about 20 words in the Bible, and then fleshed out at great length what they meant. He said the word holiness is everything about God that sets him apart from human beings, making him an object of awe, adoration, and dread to human beings. Everything about God that sets him apart from the rest of human beings in his creation and makes him a subject of awe, admiration, as we'll see on the part of believers, and dread on the part of unbelievers. All aspects of how he is immeasurably that transcended, I can use the word transcended, that means immeasurably beyond all the greatness we can think of. His moral perfection goes on forever. There's no taint in God. He's never had a bad attitude. He's never had a bad motive. He's never wished or willed anything evil toward anyone. God's holiness is his white-hot, blinding moral purity coupled with a holy zeal that hates unrighteousness or breaking of his laws. God's holiness shows forth God being God in the Old Testament. Let me give you some illustrations of what God's holiness looks like. If you want to write in your notes, if you're taking notes or mental notes, holy is who God is. Holy is who God is. Holy mercy, holy wrath, holy justice, holy goodness, every one of God's attributes is prefaced by the idea of holy, and I'll come back to that. Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden, the most perfect environment yet known to man. The new heavens, the new earth will be immeasurably greater. 
But nevertheless, they had a perfect environment and they were driven out. And God stationed angelic creatures with flaming swords to say, you can't go back there on penalty of death. And they were driven out. For how many sins? Did they commit murder? Did they rob a bank? Oh, there weren't banks yet. Uh, they steal a car, oh, there weren't cars. What great sin did they commit that they were driven out of God's presence? They disobeyed the one command he gave them to do. And actually, they committed other sins before they got there. They, dis they disbelieved who God was. He doesn't have good motive. You know, isn't that, isn't that just like God? He's holding back the good stuff. If we would just learn to disobey and rebel, then we'd find the really good life. No, you will not die. No, God said, no, that's not true. The devil argues with them and they believe the lies. Going farther in the Old Testament, you have a story where the Ark of the Covenant, which had been captured by the Philistines, and then God struck the Philistines with all of these tumors all over their bodies. They said, no, we didn't want this anyway. You can have it back. And so they send the uh, Ark of the Covenant, this box that was covered with gold. It had statues of cherubim at each uh, side looking at each other. Inside the box were the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments and Aaron's rod that budded. And the gold cover, which was called the mercy seat, where when the high priest made sacrifice for sins, he would pour out the blood on this golden top, symbolizing that the, this blood temporarily covered the sins of the people. Well, they're carrying it on an ox cart. And by the time it got to Israel, it was still on an ox cart. If you've ever seen a picture of ox carts that were used up until the Middle Ages, big round wooden wheels, solid wooden wheels, and they're very unsteady, and they gave us explicit instructions in the Old Testament. This is how you are to carry the Ark of the Covenant. No one is to touch it. There were rings on the side of the Ark, and you were to take long wooden poles and put them through the rings, and then men were to carry these on their shoulders because no one was to touch the Ark of the Covenant. Why? It was symbolic of God's presence, and God did not want the Ark of the Covenant defiled by sinful things, human beings touching it. So here it is on being ridden, taken down the street on an on a ox cart. They hit a chuck hole, one of the oxen stumble, the ox cart kind of wiggles, and Uzzah, who's just, uh, he's one of the group that's supposed to watch the Ark, he puts out his hand to steady the Ark. And I thought, I like R.C. Sproul's imitation of what didn't happen. God leaning over heaven's balustrades and go, thank you, Uzzah. Don't want that ark falling in the dirt here. God struck him dead. Wow. You know, that's just an example of how God he just goes off on people and blah, 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 my people rant and rave about God they don't know. God gave very explicit instructions how the ark was to be carried. And the reason why he didn't want men touching it because men are sinful. There's nothing sinful about the dirt. If the ark had completely fallen over into the dirt, it wasn't going to be despoiled. It wasn't going to be unclean. But if a human being touched it, only human beings on this planet are sinners. Iguanas aren't sinners. A wild yak is not a sinner. A hummingbird's not a sinner. But every one of us in this room is a sinner. And if we'd touched the ark, we would have defiled it. So God said, don't touch it. Carry it this way. You're not going to carry it this way. And then you're going to have the gall to reach out your hand and touch it. And God struck him dead. The other illustration of the book of Leviticus for this cosmic treason is the two sons of Aaron. It says in Leviticus chapter 10 that they were offering strange fire. And there's no really good translation of that Hebrew phrase that most versions say is strange fire, unauthorized fire. They had, did some hocus pocus and came up with some concoction. And God didn't thank them either. He struck them dead. It said fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. Later in the text, it says they were also drunk. Not, you're not going to have God's favor by performing religious services when you're drunk and then doing things God specifically didn't ask you to do. We don't make up worship. God tells us how he wants to be worshipped. Now, it says in Leviticus 10.3, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the peoples, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Can somebody snag me a water? 
God shows us that he's committed to holiness and he's irrevocably committed to dealing with unholiness. The attribute of holiness is the only attribute of God that's elevated to the third degree. If you say something's holy, you're just naming that it's holy. If you want to compare it to something else, it's holier. That's holy, holy. If you elevate it to the third degree, holy, holy, holy. If something's elevated to the tertiary of the third degree, that means it's the most holy. The Bible doesn't say God's just holy. It doesn't just say he's holy, holy. It says he's holy, holy, holy. It says it in the Old Testament in Isaiah 6. It says it in the New Testament in Revelation 4. The angelic creatures are singing in heaven, holy, holy, holy. I was glad to hear the, ch- the kids chime in on holy, 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 because it's something that small kids can kind of get it in the repetition. It's a good thing for them to learn. God is holy, holy, holy. Now you go, and the point of this is, well, R.C. Sproul makes a good case in the Holiness of God videos. I don't know if you've ever seen those as a church. You don't, anybody remember seeing the Holiness of God videos by R.C. Sproul? Let me commend them to you. They're six, they're 30 minutes a pop. You can do one a week for six weeks and they'll blow your socks off. In fact, don't watch the last two together because they're both pretty powerful and it might just have a revival. Anyway, the holiness of God, he points out that in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, how you emphasize things is different from how we do it in English. For example, if you're sending a text or an email to someone, don't put all caps because that means you're shouting. And then it's all caps and it's emboldened. Boy, you're really shouting. And then you're underlining and you're putting exclamation marks and you're putting all these things to make call attention to the text. In Hebrew, if you wanted to say something was not just this, but this, a case in point in the book of Genesis, there's a, a king who's being chased by an army and his chariot falls into a, and the Hebrew says, a pit pit. Now, Sproul says, I wonder if that was the piteous pit that ever existed because it says his chariot fell into a pit pit. Now, that's a Hebrew saying it was a huge pit. Was it a tar pit? Was it just a bog? Was it like a giant area of quicksand? But the Hebrew, to emphasize it, says he fell into a pit pit. God's not just holy. He's not holy, holy in comparison with everything else. He's holy, holy, holy to the transcendent level. In fact, this is what Moses says. He says in Exodus chapter 15, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord, or O covenant God? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? You know, when Moses realized he was in the presence of God in Exodus 3 and 4, He didn't go running around giving his friends high five. He didn't start doing weird things. He fell on his face. In Ezekiel chapter one and two and Isaiah chapter six, in other places in the Old Testament, when people realized they were in the presence of Almighty God, they didn't do the foolish things you see on TV or the things that many churches practice as celebration. They were on their faces in reverence because the overwhelming holiness of God made them feel like this. I was in a meeting once, and I think I can share this. I was in a meeting once, and the Holy Spirit came down at a Banner of Truth Pastors Conference. And toward the end of this lecture, and the person wasn't shouting and wasn't calling us sinners. He was just preaching a really good message. But the Spirit of God owned it, and the Spirit of God came down. And I I was crying through the concluding hymn, and my close friend was next to me, and he was singing while crying through the concluding hymn. And I had this intense sense, I don't want to even stand up. I'm too close to God. And I wanted to lay down underneath the pews, just flat out. I wanted to lay down underneath the pews. And then when it was over, my friend said, here's the side door. Let's go back to our dorm. So we went, went, and we're going back in the night to our dorms. And here's all these other pastors going back, like a bunch of lemmings heading for the sea. And we're going into our dorm rooms. And God was still there. And God was giving us a temporal sense of his greatness. The best thing I can liken it to is, imagine back in the day when you used to work out. For me, that's many, many years ago. But back in the day when you used to work out, 
and you're bench pressing and you did one too many reps and you can't get it up and there's nobody to spot you and you're like, how long can I hold this off my chest, off my throat? Okay, or what if we worse when someone says, okay, we're gonna lay a manhole cover on your chest. Good luck keeping that up so it doesn't crush you. We had a palpable sense of being crushed by the holiness of God. And the only thing we could pray for the first hour and a half, each of us prayed one time, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I wasn't running around giving people high fives and dancing in the spirit. I had an acute sense of my sinfulness, my creatureliness, my unworthiness. And God is almighty God, and he's holy, holy, holy. Now this is what the scripture says when it says what holiness does. Holiness has two impacts. On believers, it's awe, and it kind of brings you in. You have a sense of the overwhelming greatness of God, like a moth is drawn to the flame, so to speak. You have an overwhelming sense of the greatness of God, and it's attractive to the believer, this holiness of God. But to the unbeliever, it's a sense of awe and dread. I don't want to fall into the hands of this holy God. In fact, think about if you became a Christian later in life. I was 21 when I became a Christian. I didn't spend time in my BC days thinking about God. I didn't spend time thinking about, God's probably pretty holy. Non-Christians, you know, do, do mice sit around dreaming about cats and discussing cats? Do thieves talk about, what's the biggest policeman you've ever met? I mean, do, they, do people do things like that, your exact opposite? I never thought about the holiness of God, and if you would have told me about it, it would have made me cringe. Unbelievers don't like to hear about the holiness of God, but it has these two senses to it. It's both a sense of awe for believers and unbelievers, but for believers, it's awe and admiration. For unbelievers, it's awe and dread. I don't want any part of this. Let me finish up with five reasons why holiness is important to God, and if you're a real Christian, it should be important to you too. In other words, I'm saying, why should you care about holiness? Is it, is it really that big a deal? And the answer is yes, it's that big a deal. Number one, to review, because holiness is the nature of God. He commands it and he demands it of all of his people. I'm God, I created you. I created you to become like me morally. Not in your essence, but in your morals, I created you to be like me. Leviticus 11:44. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart, get ready, and be holy because I am holy. All the time, 24-7. 365, not just in church, not just for an hour, not just on Sunday, but at work, at home, while you're doing entertainment, while you're out with friends, whatever you're doing, your job description is be holy. Number two, go back to number one. God calls us to be holy, every one of us. Peter picks up the same theme and repeats it in 1 Peter chapter 1. As obedient children, as opposed to disobedient children, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were years in your days of ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior, because it is written, you are to be holy because I am holy. What does every father, of it, it's a decent father at all say to his family? This is the standard of our family. I want you to be like the standard of our family. And no father can say he's God, but he said, I want you to behave like I've taught you to behave. And God says, I want you to behave as I want my children to behave. And not just in big things, in little things, in everything. In the 1980s, Rudy Giuliani became mayor of New York City. And I think, take it back, it was the 90s, he was mayor of New York City. When he first took office, he was unpopular. Why? Well, they had a great problem with murders. New York was the murder capital of America. You didn't want to go strolling around at the wrong time of the day in New York City. They'd find you dead. And they had a policy of only going after the big things, you know, murders, rapes, robberies, bank robberies, things like that. And he told the police chief and sat him down and they told all the people, this is the scoop. We are now going to prosecute every crime that's on the books. You jaywalk, you get a ticket. You get out a spray can and write spray graffiti on the side of a building, you get a ticket. You do this, you get a ticket, you get arrested. We're going after every crime, 100% zero tolerance. And people, oh, 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 oh. 
murders plummeted, and New York City has never returned to the murder capital it used to be. And there's a great lesson for those of us pursuing sanctification. It's not just, you know, if I can just get this one big one under control and maybe uh, give it a bath and spray Chanel on it, call it Fifi, uh, take it in the backyard, uh, and if it it doesn't get out of control where people will see it and it will be embarrassing. That's too often how we view dealing with our sinful problems. That's not what Rudy Giuliani taught the people of New York you have to do. If you're to clean up the city and make it safe for humans to thrive and prosper, you need to go after all the sins, not just the big ones. We just read in 1 Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in holiness. Now, I'm not accusing anybody here of sexual impurity, but it's a huge thing. I know of churches in America where unless you commit adultery in the church, in the pew, nobody will say boo to you. I can think of one church that went through a revolution in 1987 when the new pastor called on a man to call him to repent. He had left his wife and was living with another woman while a member of the church. And the pastor confronted him, confronted him and said, you know, you need to repent. I'm calling you to repent. That's why I'm here. Well, I'm not going to do that. He said, well, you know, the scripture says I'm going to have to put you under discipline. If push comes to shove, if you don't repent, we'll have to excommunicate you from the church. I'm giving you the short version, but the man said, you're not going to do that. Now, this is a town of 2,000 in rural Louisiana. Why? Well, I can think of six other men who are committing adultery in the same church. Give me their names. I will go talk to them. Can you imagine in a small county, a town of 2,000, if seven men are excommunicated for unrepent adultery from First Baptist Church? Kablooey! And you know what? You know who was vilified? The church and that pastor. How dare they? These are nice men. This is... This is terrible. Look at you're making these men feel bad. Let them have their adultery. Marriage isn't that big a deal. The holiness of God isn't that big a deal. I mean, nobody said that, but that's what they were communicating. Holiness is important in every facet of our lives. Our families. Is holiness a goal for your family? Is holiness a goal for your conduct at work? Is holiness a goal for how you do church? I used to always say the church meetings were a very good way of looking at the health of a church because it says in Ephesians 3 that the angels in heaven look over the balustrades of heaven and they marvel that look at God saved these people and he's brought them to a position higher than the angels and that the church is a, is a testimony to the watching angels. God's holiness is commanded for all of us. No ifs, ands, or buts. You can't say, well, this is a bad time of the month for me to pursue holiness. Or it's a real tough time at work and I can't pursue holiness. There are no excuses. There are no get-out-of-jail-free clauses for not pursuing holiness. And in fact, these things that are difficult are part of God's provision to grow you in holiness. Number two, God's holiness was what judged Christ on the cross. God's holiness hates sin. The Bible has a problem that human beings never seem to wrestle with. If God's holy, how in the world is he going to save sinners? Look at them. Now, some people who are incredibly self-focused and naive say, well, he just needs to be big-hearted and get over it. Just come on into heaven, y'all. I'm big-hearted and I'm having a good day. Just come in heaven. And he's going to stink up heaven and pollute eternity with sinful human beings running around? I don't think so. But God says, I am not going to lower my standards. One iota, but I will lower my son, so to speak. And so his son is damned in the place of all the guilty sinners who had ever put their trust in him. And every one of their sins does get judged. Do not ever be unclear. Every sin ever committed in the history of the world will be judged. It will either be judged on the unrepentant sinner as he endures his, his or her time in a Christless eternity in hell, or it was judged in Christ on the cross when the Father judged him in holiness for all the sins of all of his people. Psalm 22, we know, is a psalm about the Messiah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from my groaning words? 
Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. But you are holy, enthroned upon the praises of your people. The reason why Christ was on the cross was because God is holy, and to deal with sin, he has to judge sin at the expense of his son. God's word is explicit. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So God himself bore the penalty that man would not or could not pay. No sin will ever go unpunished. And you boys and girls need to hear that too. Your sins are going to be punished too, either on Christ, because you came to trust in him, or if you never come to trust in Christ, you will bear the guilt of your sins forever and ever. God's holy justice must punish and eradicate all sin. You know, well, you should have a sense of gladness that there's a hell, because, because there's a hell, that means that God is a God who judges sin. And all the garbage you see happening in our culture that nobody ever seems to be called into account for is not getting off scot-free. You're not going to hire a shyster lawyer on Judgment Day and somehow finagle your way out of facing judgment. Every sin ever committed will be punished because God is committed to that irrevocably. Number three, and by the way, I know this is a heavy message, and I, I've prayed about it for the last couple of years, and I thought, well, I'm not going to give these my first two messages because I want to be invited back. No, that's not. <laughs> but I knew that you had to have certain things under your belt before I got to these messages. Holiness is the goal or the end game for God saving us. The Bible says very explicitly, God saved you to be holy. Ephesians 1.4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so we could do our own thing and be happy. Oh no, that's not what it says. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Christ is the firstborn among many brethren. I saved you that you would become like a little Christ, that you would become holy. In Hebrews 10, 14, a verse I mentioned when I preached before on the cross, it's a verse you should, mention, you should memorize. For by a single offering, God has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. I have the righteousness of Christ. All my sins were placed upon him. As far as God's concerned, I'm declared perfect in Christ. But my experience of how I actually live is catching up and God's making me holy over the course of my life. If you think I'm bad now, you should have seen me going on 50 years ago when I was converted. That was a mess but God's been working on me for 50 years. The family crest for each believer, when it says on your blazer, it should say holiness unto the Lord, like it did on the high priest hat and on his breastplate. Holiness unto the Lord. The family likeness that God wants to see in all of us is the perfection of holiness, so to speak. You are not being who you were saved to be if you're not pursuing holiness. And one thing I love, I've come to see about holiness it's the universal solvent. What do I mean? You know, there are all kinds of questions you have. As a single, does God want me to be married? I don't think I have the gift of singleness. If I do, I'm going to take it back to the Christian bookstore and get a different gift because I don't want to be single. Okay, so you, where's Miss Wright? Where's Mr. Wright? How, how would I recognize them when I saw them? Pursue holiness. Where should I be doing with my job? I'm not sure the job I'm in now is what I should be doing and I can maybe do this, or this is an opportunity. What should I be doing? Pursue holiness. I've seen in my life that I've pursued holiness. Conundrums, problems, questions have their way of dissipating as, as a mist. And go, oh. I knew my wife for three years before I was engaged to her, but she wanted to be holy. And I thought, well, that's fine for you. But I was very naive. And, you, know, you know, this is a square kind of sort of... And, I thought being holy was kind of uncool. Now, I used to really mess with the minds of our teenagers because I'd go up to them and say, you know, look at me and look at your parents. We used to be your age, and we used to think we could be cool, and look what happened to us. <laughs> oh, no, they start weeping in public. You know. No, please, I said, repent now. Uh, holiness was not something as a 21-year-old I saw as a great value. And God goes, to quote an 80s movie, McFly, anybody in there? And you know the movie. And uh, 
Lord says, if you don't want to be holy, you're not my son. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And I began to pursue holiness, and I was trying to figure out what I should be doing. And the mist cleared, what I should be doing with my life, who I should marry. These kinds of things became clearer as I was pursuing holiness. It's the means to solve every problem, so to speak. Number four, holiness is why God gave us the new birth and made us each into a new creation. In Ephesians 4.21, Paul says, Put on the new man which has been created in the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. God created you to be a new person. I was Steve for 20, almost 21 years, and then in January of 1969, God made me into a new person. And the goal of making me into this new person so that I would want to be holy and that I would pursue it. Paul tells Timothy, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. You're not to be like everybody else. You know how the kid, well, everybody else is doing it. Well, we don't do that. If everybody else ran naked down the street, do you think we're, the kind of great logic parents use with their kids? Uh, God says, I've called you to be different. Set apart. The word sanctified means to be set apart exclusively for God. His values, his ways, his goals, his agenda, his likeness. God has called us to a holy calling. And one of the things we have to face up to, and some of us, we still haven't gotten it, you're going to have to figure out, do you want to be a whirling and have everybody love you? Well, get it on. Bag this Christianity stuff and get it on with the world. But if you want God's favor, then hang the world. Let them think what they think. I can remember as a junior in college, I had to come up to, do I want everybody in my college to like me? Do I want my fraternity brothers to like me? They're, they're messed up human beings like I've been. What in the end of, at the end of the day, does it, difference does it make if messed up human beings like me or don't like me? But if Almighty God likes me or doesn't like me, that's the issue. And Almighty God had saved me and set his seal upon me, give me his Holy Spirit, give me his son's righteousness. How could I not live for him? If the world hates me, well, that's just tough. And, you know, you feel like, I've got a sock for a backbone. Well, God can put a steel rod up a sock, and you've got something. You can have a backbone and say, I don't want to be a whirling. I want to be like Christ. And so the fact that you don't dress like everybody in the world, you know, it's, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, moving right on. Um, Number five, I'll, I think I'll move to the last point. Holiness is a sign of the health and the reality of whether or not you're a Christian, of your salvation. Pursue holiness, Hebrews 12, 14, without which no one will see the Lord. And in my naivete and blindness the first couple of years I was a Christian, I thought it meant, was well, I'm witnessing to people, they're not going to see Christ in me if I'm not pursuing holiness. Well, that's kind of sort of true. But that's not the import of that verse. The import of that verse is, I'm not going to see the Lord if I'm not pursuing holiness. Moment by moment, repenting of my sins. I'm not calling you to be perfect in this life. I am calling you to put to death your remaining sins and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm calling you to think of sanctification as a 24-7, 365 days a year pursuit of being like Jesus Christ. A pastor I knew wrecked his life, wrecked his family, wrecked this other woman's family, and uh, I won't go into the gory details, but let's just say that they both left their families for their selfish desires. And in August of this one year, it was in late August in Atlanta, it was hot and steamy like it is in Houston. Myself and two other pastors knock on his door at 11 o'clock at night. He comes to the door and he sees us and he goes, I go, would you come out and let us talk to you for a minute? So he came out, and he knew what we were there for. We called him to repentance. He sat in the hood of his car and didn't blink, didn't say anything, just sat there and let us jabber on. No matter what we said, he didn't get mad. He didn't get sad. He just really didn't give a rip. He didn't care. Toward the end of our time, I was praying, say, Lord, what can I do to get his attention? I said, Eddie... I went to conferences with you. I sat in a couple of classroom lectures with you. I've known you for several years. I'm really sad. I thought you were a son, but you turned out to be a tool. 
Well, what do you mean a tool? Well, you know, you're out working in the garage and you use a tool and then you leave it on the workbench, you put it up on the pegboard, and then you go in the house. You use it temporarily, but if you're working with your son, your son comes in the house with you and you close the door. I thought you were a son. You've proven to be just a tool that God used temporarily for a short time. No, I, I, I'm a son. I'm not a tool. I'm a son. I said, biblically, you can't say that because sons are lifelong repenters. You haven't repented in two, three, four years. You can't say biblically that you're a son because you're not a repenter. And we're to be lifelong repenters. I'm still repenting at age 70. I'm not there yet. God calls us to run our race. And you think, well, being faithful, that's so vanilla. That's something old people choose as goals because it's so nothing. I'm 25, man. I'm a world beater. I'm going to all these things for God. You know, I, I was that way uh, my first couple of years in California working with students. It was like watching a small child in a sandbox having it takes a sand and throwing it in the air. Do you know what you get at the end of that day? An itchy scalp. Because all you've been doing is throwing sand in the air and you haven't really built anything and even sand castles fall down. I didn't accomplish anything my first couple of years of ministry. I was just uh, a tool that God was sharpening. But the point is, is God's calls us to be faithful. Not flashy, not famous, not having your name in lights, not people interviewing you for the next installment of Oprah, but that you would be God's man or God's woman. And that means repenting of your sins, putting to death remaining sins, mortifying them is the biblical word, but that means putting it to death. And putting something to death is not something that most of us have ever done. If ever, any of you are hunters, you know something what it's like, but usually you shoot it, and by the time you get to it, it's probably dead, but sometimes you have to finish it off, and sometimes people are squeamish about doing up close and personal what they've done from 100 yards away with a 30-odd six. But in the days of combat, in the days of the Bible, when it was hand-to-hand, mano-a-mano, you hit someone with an ax, and you can hear their head cave in. You can see their, their side of their head be knocked away or stabbing somebody, or spear, I mean, just all the gory things that hand-to-hand combat is. God says, I want you to get in there and put your remaining sins to death. In fact, as I've been talking today, have things come to mind, you go, yeah, well, this isn't, I'm not really, I'm not really proud of this part of my life. Well, are you willing to put it to death? Are you willing to put it to death because it displeases Christ? Because it's a blot on the reputation of your heavenly father? I'll close with these questions. Do you desire to be a holy man or woman of God? Kids, if you're a professing Christian as a kid, do you want to be a holy kid? Or if you're a teenager, do you want to be a holy teenager? Do you want to be like Jesus in moral purity? Do you want to please and honor your Father in heaven? Well done, good and faithful servant. Or as I used to tell my son, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Because I was. He's my, my son is 44, man. And I'm only 54. No, um, he, he's 44 and he's a man of God. But I was pleased with him because he wanted to be a man of God and he was a holy young man, an obedient man to Christ. I was proud of him. Do you grieve over your remaining sins and wish they could be put to death? My remaining sins are my biggest grief. Probably the hottest tears I've ever cried are over my remaining sins. I joked about it earlier, but do you have pet sins that you've kept washed and sprayed with Chanel and you give it a name and you keep it in the backyard when visitors come by, but you have no real intentions of strangling this little beauty? Do you have pet sins like that? So are you into sin management or sin mortification? Management is where you kind of shape things up and keep things working. Mortification is you just put the sucker to death. God calls you to repent of everything in your life that you already know is displeasing to him. And he wants you to trust in the finished work of Christ, which I've preached to you before, and then hunger and purpose after new obedience along the way. Christ is atoned for all of your sins. 
He wants you to trust in that finished work and he wants you to have energy to put your remaining sins to death. And that's a good word. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I've said hard things today. They're in your word. And they're hard not because I said them, but because they're in your word and they run contrary to our world, to our flesh, to the prevailing culture we live in, to the evil one. I pray that you'd help us each to go home and be serious about what we heard today, to take serious inventory of our lives and to come up with a list of the things we need to, we need to deal with, we need to put to death. Lord, may this church shine as a bright light, not just in Haltom City, but in the north side of Fort Worth, because there are holy people who worship here, who love Christ here. Would you take glory for yourself in this church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I went over and I apologize for that.